Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The legislative session ends next Wednesday, May 4th. Unlike recent sessions, COVID has not dominated policymaking priorities, but Election Day 2022 certainly will. With every seat up for re-election in the General Assembly and campaigning in the governor's race heating up, what will lawmakers prioritize in their final budget? Coming up where we live, we hear from the majority and minority leaders in the Connecticut House, State Representatives Jason Rojas and Vincent Candelora. Both parties are pushing for tax relief because Connecticut's surplus continues to grow thanks to federal funding, nearly $4 billion, according to the governor's office. And besides the budget, what other bills could make it to the finish line? Now, if you have a question for State Representatives Jason Rojas and Vincent Candelora, you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. They'll be coming on later this hour. First, Christine Stewart is with us. She's editor-in-chief of CT News Junkie. Christine, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So give us a, a brief explainer on this short session and why it's so unique and, you know, what you think this election coming up is uh, going to mean for this final budget. So the short session, so in Connecticut, we're kind of unusual in that we pass a two-year budget. So we actually already have a budget in place. And so the short session, um, which is always in the even years, is supposed to be to do um, any sort of budget cleanup. uh, And all the legislation is supposed to be focused on the budget. And obviously, they want to have a short session because they want to be able to have enough time to get to their elections. And so that often plays a really big role um, in these short sessions because um, in the House and the Senate, they're they're up for reelection every two years. The governor's up for reelection every four years. So this happens to fall in a gubernatorial election year. And so they are um, furiously trying to get to the finish line to adjust the budget. And this year, they actually have more money than they know what to do with, <laughs> um, which comes with its own set of, of problems and, and you know, how they exactly, um, how they cut taxes. They obviously want to cut taxes in an election year, but because they accepted so much of the federal funding, they can only cut taxes by a certain amount of money. And obviously they would like to cut taxes more than that. So you mentioned that, and I'm curious, uh, we're going to have Representative Vincent Candelora on later in the hour, but I know that state Republicans are are pushing uh, Connecticut uh, to be like some other states that are um, trying to push back on, uh, in court, I believe, this idea that because they receive uh, federal uh, relief during COVID, that um, they're limited in the tax cutting in their particular state. Can you give us any context? 
Yeah, so there's 16 states that are kind of pushing against, um, you know, the the federal restrictions on how much you can cut taxes uh, in this year. And Connecticut, uh, Governor Lamont and the legislative Democrats, which are in the majority, are um, opposing this idea. And they believe that they can, you know, stay within their lanes and, and cut enough taxes and that it's going to be satisfactory. And Republicans say, well, the less you, you know, cut these taxes, that means less money and people people's pockets at a time when inflation is at a 40-year high. Um, So they want to be able to give taxpayers back a little bit more um, of that money and and take off those federal restrictions. Um, When we think about how much the Dems are proposing uh, to cut in terms of taxes, can you give us some, um, some bullet points there? Yeah, so that is part of the problem. So the finance committee package and the appropriations committee package, both from the Democrats, um, don't match up. So the Democrats actually want to cut $784 million more um, than the appropriations budget says they can cut. Um, so that's kind of thrown a whole wedge into um, these budget negotiations. They think that they were able to wrap up most of the appropriation side. Um, the only outstanding issue is how much money will go to prop up the child care sector. Um, but uh, they plan to tackle the, the finance package today and try to get their arms around that. Now, the difference between the Democrats' finance package and the governor's finance package is this child care tax credit, um, uh, which if they did go ahead and do, they would have to uh, reduce the tax cuts that Governor Lamont has proposed on the car tax or the property tax in order to kind of fit under these federal guidelines for accepting all this COVID funding. Mm, so there's not agreement there yet. There is definitely not agreement there yet. And and I know that the House Speaker has kind of set like Tuesday as this like arbitrary deadline where we have to have, um, you know, the budget kind of hashed out um, and in somewhat of a final form if they're going to vote on it next Wednesday, uh, May 4th. But it is definitely not there yet. We're going to be hearing from House Majority Leader, Democrat Representative Jason Rojas coming up in a few minutes. We'll be sure to to ask about that child tax uh, credit and where, uh, if this agreement is possible, uh, Christine. You know, before we got to this week, there was a lot of attention on uh, this contract uh, with the State Employees Bargaining Agent Coalition, which included raises and bonuses for 46,000 state employees. That has now passed uh, in both the House and Senate. And so can you talk a little bit about the disagreement there and what these state workers will now be receiving come the the new fiscal year? Yeah, so the state workers are going to be receiving a $3,500 bonus, and they're also going to be receiving a 2.5% increase in in pay. Um, And this is after we had agreements in 2009, 2011, 2017, in which, you know, state workers took a cut. And also state workers, um, you know, even though people in the private sector might not have been getting raises during that time either, state workers took a cut and they also changed the pension requirements. Um, So there are no longer any defined pensions to anybody who comes into state government service. Um, It is a hybrid 401k. Uh, And I think that, you know, part of this argument between Democrats and Republicans on this, this agreement was that, you know, these state workers are getting raises and bonuses, but 
you know, employees in the, the private sector are also getting raises and, and bonuses, maybe not all of them, um, but a majority of them have seen their pay increase uh, over this time. I mean, it's an employer, employee marketplace uh, right now. Um, so there's, you know, 46,000 people in Connecticut who pay taxes, um, you know, who contribute to their communities, and they're also Connecticut residents. You really can't separate them out. And so in giving them a pay increase will will help support the economy and help them be able to afford more goods at this time of um, inflation. If this hadn't been passed, what would have been the alternative when we think about the huge surplus Connecticut has, as you mentioned, thinking about inflation? I know Danny Haar, uh, who's an associate editor at Hearst, calculated recently taxpayers would need to kick in an extra $230 million over four years without this contract. Yeah, so it's a really um, interesting argument. I mean, you know, these are employees who live here and they pay taxes here. And think about the state had no negotiating power, right? The the state right now is flush in cash, you know, somewhat because the federal government has, has given us all this money. But it's the first time the state has had a surplus. So what negotiating power did they have? And the years in which the state employee state employees were forced to take a pay cut are times when, you know, the state was facing hundreds of millions of dollars in budget deficits. And that just was not the case this year. You're hearing Christine Stewart here on Where We Live. She's editor-in-chief of CT News Junkie as we talk about this last week before the session ends Wednesday, May 4th. If you have a question, we're going to be hearing from lawmakers, Majority Leader Representative Jason Rojas and Minority Leader Vincent Candelora coming up this hour. Our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Tax relief plays really well in an election year, Christine. And so I wanted to talk more about this impact of the election on this budget. Uh, You recently noted an unfamiliar photographer during the governor's uh, ceremonial gas tax suspension bill signed uh, earlier this month. When you asked about it, it was an interesting exchange. Let's play that for our listeners. So um, is this camera guy I don't recognize a sign that the campaign is starting to heat up? I'm thinking about things. Okay. Um, so, I mean, you're on the air with your first ad this week. Um, I'm on the ad with the look. I wanted to get through the session, but obviously the politics is kicking up. Um, my opponent's been on TV for you know months now, so um, we did do a, a positive ad that went up a couple of days ago, talking about tax cuts and getting the state moving again. Are you concerned about outside spending? About PACs coming into the state and and advertising? Yeah, I think it sort of violates the spirit of what we're trying to do with campaign finance reform in a state like this, but can't fight gravity. It's happening all over the country. So let's talk about that exchange. Uh, and we think about outside money coming in. I'm not making this up. There's a pack called Parents Against Stupid Stuff. What can you tell us, Christine? <laughs> So, well, I think it's just kind of um, it's kind of interesting that he would mention that it violates the spirit of campaign finance when the governor is not participating in Connecticut's citizens election program. Um, he and uh, Republican Bob Stefanowski are largely loaning themselves um, millions of dollars um, to to fund their campaign. So, you know, they are they are both millionaires um, who are running against each other again. So, I mean, outside money, uh, you know, 
these these wealthy um, these wealthy people can can seek because of Citizens United can seek to influence elections by by advertising and spending millions of dollars on the air to um, get whatever they want across to voters. What they can't do is they can't coordinate with the candidate. So you know the candidates don't necessarily like this either because maybe this group is sending a message that they don't necessarily um, support. And when we think about these groups and the broader conservative playbook having an impact here, Christine, uh, what stands out to you? Yeah, I don't think that we've seen that they've had, uh, you know, we have seen outside spending before. And, you know, we saw it uh, with Tom Foley and Governor Malloy. Um, We see it in the the U.S. Senate races. Um, It doesn't seem to have a huge impact on on Connecticut voters but i mean it's it's free speech i mean they're they're getting their message across on on the airwaves so you know um they are looking to to uh have some influence but i don't think that any super PAC that's come in on behalf of the candidate has actually had the candidate they're supporting um necessarily win an election. Mm-hmm. Uh, his opponent is, of course, Republican uh, uh, Bob Stefanowski. And, you know, we've seen some of his ads uh, on television or a lot of his ads. Uh, so what do you think uh, voters should expect in this next few months? I know the, the nominating conventions are, are coming up. They are. They are the the weekend after the legislative session ends. Um, and so that's why they definitely don't want to go into overtime and a special session. Um, you know, I, I think we are going to hear some of the same messages that that we heard back in in 2018. Um, so we're going to we're going to hear a lot from the Republicans on affordability. Um, and we might hear a little bit on um, on crime uh, in Connecticut. Um, Democrats are going to, you know, tout the fact of how well the governor did during the the pandemic and how far he's um, he's taken the state. And um, you know, they're going to promote that they they have a budget surplus and they were able to do tax cuts. Again, you can join us with Christine Stewart, editor-in-chief of CT News Junkie, as we talk about this legislative session. Again, it needs to wrap up by next Wednesday with the final budget, also some other uh, bills before lawmakers. Our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So let's talk about some of these other bills. I think you just mentioned uh, juvenile justice. Uh, There was a story at CT News Junkie about how advocates really want uh, the lawmakers to oppose Uh, this uh, bill, I believe, uh, House Bill, uh, let me find it right here. Uh, Yeah, House House Bill 5417. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, You know, so basically, this is the compromise legislation between Democrats and Republicans um, over what was during the pandemic and increase in um, juvenile car thefts. Um, But advocates are now um, looking, they say that it went too far, that even though it doesn't transfer 13 and 14 year olds accused of these serious crimes automatically to adult court, it does allow for the GPS monitoring of juveniles um, accused of a second car theft, which they think is a bridge too far. Oh, so let's talk a little bit more about that. So it was bipartisan, voted out of the Judiciary Committee. I thought it was interesting in the story that Lisa Backus did that none of the recommendations from the state's Juvenile Justice Oversight and Policy Committee made it into this bill. 
Yeah, none of those recommendations made it in. I think that people were kind of taken aback by um, the lack of time they had to do this and get this across the finish line. And, you know, I think the pandemic kind of played a role in that, in that they were having all these meetings on Zoom. And if you have these meetings on Zoom, they're going to last 13, 14 hours, and it's going to be a, a lot tougher to get a lot of legislation moved through. Unionization efforts are also taking shape around the country, also here in our state. Uh, Recently, Starbucks workers in West Hartford joining a national union drive. There's a captive audience bill that advanced uh, to the Senate, I believe, late last week. Uh, Tell us more about that. That was interesting because that actually received bipartisan support. And so, you know, this is a bill they've been trying to get, um, Democrats have been trying to get passed for for years now. And it basically, it kind of limits what employers can talk to employees about in the workplace. Um, and it actually received bipartisan support uh, in the Senate because they think that they found um, the right compromise. And, you know, it, it doesn't... Um, uh, it doesn't circumvent uh, federal labor laws mm-hmm. is, is what they ended up deciding. And I believe it'll, it's up or potentially could come up to the House this week, Christine? Um, yes. Everything that needs to actually get done needs to come <laughs> up before <laughs> before Friday. Um, otherwise, they're, they're going to really struggle. So I understand there was also a bill, lollipops at the state candy. Probably not a priority. Or am I wrong? <laughs> You know what? It is on the House calendar. <laughs> um, so you can ask Representative Rojas about that because, um, you know, that it, it could go today maybe or tomorrow. All right. Will do. Uh, before we head to break, uh, Christine, uh, you know, we know also a lot of lawmakers announced they wouldn't be running for reelection. Uh, some citing financial strain. Uh, lawmakers haven't seen an increase in their 28,000 base pay in 21 years. Again, Connecticut, uh, one of the states that has part time uh, state lawmakers. Can you talk about that at all? And the fact that, you know, so many people uh, in these positions, you know, the institutional knowledge, uh, leaving uh, the General Assembly. And what's your take on that. It's a big deal. I mean, the pay is part of it, but I think the pandemic also played a role because it also hasn't been it hasn't been as collegial. It hasn't been where they've been able to gather and actually feel good about um, the public policy and they haven't been able to go back and forth and have discussions and um, I think that if you put yourself out there in the political world these days, um, you open yourself up to a lot of criticism, and maybe that criticism isn't worth the $28,000 a year. Mm. Uh, before we head to break, is there another bill that you want to mention, again, that needs to get done uh, this week? Oh, my goodness. There are so many. There's so many little bills that need to get done. But I think that the, the budget is obviously um, the, the biggest debate. Um, that needs to happen. Um, there's also, they made changes to the ban on flavored vape products. Um, and so it's no longer at actual outright ban on flavored vape products. So that that was another interesting um, thing. The budget, is there a big priority? Any concern that it won't get done by next Wednesday? That hasn't happened very often. It doesn't happen very often in these short um, sessions because they want to get to their election and to their conventions. So um, I feel like they will be able to uh, push this through, even though time is time is running short. 
Again, you're hearing Christine Stewart here on Where We Live, editor-in-chief of CT News Junkie. As we talk about the legislative session, again, it must, the final budget must be approved by next Wednesday, May 4th. Coming up, we're going to hear from legislative leaders. Uh, first up is House Majority Leader Representative Jason Rojas. If you have a question for him, stay on the line, and you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. A strong stock market fueled income tax receipts for the state and federal leaf also helped boost Connecticut's surplus this year to nearly $4 billion. And that's having an impact on budget negotiations before the short session ends next Wednesday. The surplus in Connecticut coffers has both parties proposing tax relief. Coming up, we'll hear from House Minority Leader Vincent Candelora and more about the plan by Republican lawmakers proposing $1.2 billion in tax relief, including a cut to the state income tax. First, the General Assembly's House Majority Leader joins us now on the phone, State Representative Jason Rojas, a Democrat who represents parts of East Hartford and Manchester. Representative Rojas, welcome back to the show. Uh, Good morning, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me on. Christine Stewart did a great job. You got a lot to tackle before Friday. And so what's on tap? Um, everything, everything that remains on our House calendar and everything that is starting to move out of the Senate, um, you know, the bills continue to get, get uh, continue to get referred to the, to committee. So sometimes a bill goes to a committee, it may or may not come back. So that often influences exactly whether we can take something up. But, you know, this is kind of normal for how we usually operate in any given session and in particular in the short session. And I'm confident that we'll be able to work together with our Republican colleagues to get most of that work through the process. And there will be times when we disagree and we'll have to spend a, a quite a bit of more time debating particular bills. Let's talk about the child tax credit. Um, there's also a, a talk to expand child care programs. I understand there's disagreement with the governor over this. What can you tell us? Yeah, no, I think the governor believes in, in both of those, the, the, the value of both of those policies. It comes down to a question of what we can uh, of, afford to do um, and not afford to do because there isn't a lack of resources. We know there's a lack of resources, but the limitations we have in terms of how, how many taxes we can cut on the tax side of thing because of the stimulus rules that came down where we can't reduce taxes by more than 1%. And then, of course, on the state side, we have a spending cap that doesn't allow us to spend all the money that we would otherwise like to spend on a lot of these important programs. So 
those are the constraints we face. There's no disagreement about the spirit of the policy proposals. It's just a matter of how we get there. So I think the the proposal is to create a $300 per child credit for low to middle income families that could go uh, uh, in effect after 2024. And so when we talk about what would need to be cut to be able to afford that, uh, speaking because you just mentioned the cap, Representative Rojas. Right. Yeah. So, you know, whenever you talk about a new program, whether it's a spending program or a tax credit program or a tax reduction program, right, there is the other side of, uh, of, the, um, of, the, of the graph there, right? Um, what do we do on the spending side to be able to account for that revenue that's either lost or spent on another new program? Um, obviously, they're looking to the out years outside of the biennial budget uh, to help it, to give us some more room to do it because of the constraints that I just talked about. Um, so that's why we're looking to do it in 24 and 25. We, you know, we have some ideas of what the financial uh, place is going to look like then. Um, but of course, as we know, um, we're in a very volatile economic environment, and that could change to the positive. Um, and we'll get consensus revenue estimates later this week, um, which are due back to us. I suspect that the revenues, again, are going to be higher than we were otherwise expecting when we passed the budget last year. That'll kind of help in our, inform our thinking about what the out years are. Uh, but there's a lot of considerations at play whenever we're making any of these decisions, and none of them are ever as easy as we hoped they could be. Before I take some listener uh, calls, Representative Rojas, for getting a lot of comments, of course, on that CBAC agreement that was approved both in the Connecticut House and Senate last week. Uh, Some really wondering how the state can afford this because once, as you mentioned, once that federal relief dries up, uh, Connecticut will no longer be in the black. And so can you you talk about why uh, you supported this and why this was necessary? Yeah, I mean, these are employees, right? We rely on them every day to deliver all sorts of important state services, um, and not just direct services. I think most often people think about it in the context of the Department of Corrections, right? Those frontline workers who worked throughout the pandemic. Um, it's an acknowledgement of the work that they did, but there's also reality of the laws that are in place in which we have unionized state employees. We have a collective bargaining process to which the legislature doesn't play a direct role in negotiating. We get to vote yes or no. Um, the administration and CBAC went through the process of negotiating a budget that they deemed to be fair. Um, and, uh, you know, in the back of our minds, we could reject it. It could go to arbitration. Um, we don't know what the outcome of that arbitration process might be. But given a more recent contract in which the arbitrators decided to award higher uh, wage, uh, wage increases, we felt like this is the best deal that's been presented by both sides, by both the administration and state employees. It does, you know, give two and a half percent raises. There is a bonus program that's included in that. We think that is the best deal that's going to be given to us for the state taxpayers to continue to compensate the state employees who work every day on behalf of the state of Connecticut. Mm. I'm thinking about all of the, the nonprofits who also provide really important social services to the state of Connecticut and saving right. the state a ton of money through the years. We talked to the Connecticut Nonprofit Alliance in March, uh, where they're dealing with staff shortages as well and flat funding. And so I'm wondering, as majority leader, uh, now that you've gotten this deal done for state employees, 46,000 with CBAC, what can be done to help these nonprofits who provide services for residents? 
I, I totally, totally understand the concerns that the nonprofit community has had. You know, I've met with them a number of times too. You know, there are lots of groups who have come in and asked for significant amounts of new dollars to be spent on them. And, you know, this is one of those situations where we're not able to. I, are we going to provide additional support to the nonprofit community? Yes. Is it going to be in the amounts of 300 or 400 million dollars a year? Unlikely, given all of the other priorities that we have a responsibility to fund in state government. So I totally understand where they're coming from. I think they'll, we, they will get additional support, just won't be at the level that I think they were hoping for. Um, but, you know, it, it raises the fair question about the long-term sustainability of our nonprofit sector and what we want to do about that and how we can identify additional resources. I know that in the long term, as we continue to pay, to, pay down long-term debt, that is actually freeing up revenue in the out years, additional revenue that's not no longer going to so those long-term debt costs, and that'll give us the ability to continue to incrementally increase that, that those resources that nonprofits so desperately need. Mm-hmm. I think the nonprofits are asking for $72 million, and so you mentioned they will get some. So, so can you give us an idea? Well, what would, to you would make sense, given what you just shared about how important they are to the state as well? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's hard to take out any one particular funding stream and say, this is what I think they should get, because again, that decision is going to influence a whole bunch of other decisions. So it always has to be looked at in the larger context, in the bigger picture, um, only because that's just a, it's a necessity for us and how we manage the state budget, given all of the interest that exists out there about who wants funding for what. So it's impossible for, for, impossible for me to give you a number. Um, and, you know, our approach chairs have been working over the weekend to finalize that. So a number that may have existed on Friday may be different by today. It could be higher, could be lower. Yeah, you mentioned a Propes Chair, Senator Kathy Austin, is one of them, I believe. Uh, she uh, really believes that uh, it's time to, to pony up for, for social services, so we'll see what happens there. You can join our conversation with State Representative uh, Jason Rojas, the majority leader, as we talk about uh, the last week of this short session, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Luis is calling in from New Haven. Luis, what's your question? Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, so there is about 120 to 30,000 uh, undocumented folks in uh, in Connecticut, and um, they don't have access to healthcare. Um, so the uh, Husky for Undocumented uh, Immigrants uh, campaign has been working really hard to um, to uh, bring um, healthcare to undocumented folks. So my question is, um, the, the, the well, I'm going to backtrack. The uh, the bill uh, did not pass on committee. Um, so now we have an, an opportunity to uh, bring access to healthcare uh, for undocumented uh, immigrants uh, or children uh, through the budget implementer. So my question is um, to Representative Rojas: um, Will you commit to expand Husky for undocumented children uh, in the budget implementer? Um, and second, um, can you uh, please share about uh, you know what is, in your view, what is the difference between a 12-year-old and a, and a 13-year-old, uh, which is what we have right now? Um, on the budget uh, for this year. Representative Rojas. Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the question. I know that, that that is an important issue that's been on the mind of a number of legislators. And obviously, I think there was an attempt. Obviously, we had a bill this year. It didn't pass out of committee. Much like, la- I think it was last year when we, we did the initial expansion for birth to 12. Um, and there is really no difference between a 12 and 13-year-old. What it really came down to was a matter of cost. And again, what we're able to spend in a given year, given the, the constraints that we have on the spending cap. Um, and and that really that's really what it comes down to. I, I support expanding 
expanding it um, for undocumented young people to continue to provide them health care. Um, we, conti- we should try to provide health care to undocumented adults as well, too. Um, all of us who pay for health insurance otherwise pay for that cost of those undocumented individuals who lack insurance who end up in an emergency room to try to get basic care. Um, we, should want- we should be wanting to avoid that for both moral reasons and economic reasons. It's the right thing to do, provide people access to health care while they live with us in our communities, but also it costs a whole lot more, much more money to deal with it in the emergency room rather than finding a way to get them uh, health care through a primary care physician and some of the other ways that those of us who have health insurance are able to access care. Related to that, Representative Rojas, Kathy tweeted, you know, she wants to hear more about the bills relating to health care cost control. And are lawmakers listening to the concerns of advocates for people with disabilities, older people, black and brown people who may actually need increased access to, say, a specialist, especially in the wake of COVID? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right. This is this has been a conversation that's been going on for my entire time in the legislature. We've been able to make incremental improvements in terms of providing access. We obviously have the federal uh, access, uh, the, the federal access, health access program too, which increasingly individuals are availing themselves of. Um, I know there's a lot of efforts with the Office of Healthcare Strategy to try to set these benchmarks and really identify exactly where healthcare dollars are being spent, how we can change and work. With, with our healthcare providers, with insurance companies to ensure that more money is going to actual direct care rather than all the other administrative costs that come along with a for-profit healthcare system. Can you give us an update on bills directed at voting rights access for residents, uh, particularly for black and Latino voters or people with disabilities who might have difficulty accessing polling sites and addressing a lack of language assistance for residents uh, who, uh, for whom English is not their first language, Representative Rojas? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, those are all, you know, you speak about the complexity of the work that we have to do with uh, at the Connecticut General Assembly and in state government. And again, we're making progress on those two. I know there was a press conference just last Thursday on the full voting rights. The bill number is escaping my mind only because I have a million bill, bill numbers in my head at any given time. But I know there's a strong commitment among Democrats to continue to advance access to voting rights. And again, begin to make those changes and adjustments to reflect the changing uh, demographics of our communities and who's able to access voting rights, and these are people who are documented and here legally uh, and here able to participate in our elections, but face a number of obstacles, whether it's access to a voting place in poor transportation systems that exist to them. We, we've seen a couple times where some municipalities over the last couple months have been looking to reduce the, the, the number of polling stations within our communities. Often they will cite cost, right, but there is no cost to providing access uh, and accessibility to individuals being able, uh, being able to go vote. Local decisions made about where polling stations are located should obviously take into account ADA accessibility so that nobody faces the obstacle, whether they have a disability of one kind, whether they're in a wheelchair or in a walker, or if they're elderly and not able to climb stairs, ensuring that the places where voting takes place, people can easily access them, vote, and, and then leave in a timely manner so that we don't have the long lines um, that we do see sometimes, right, when turnout is very high in Connecticut, but certainly not to what we see in other parts of the country where people are intentionally trying to make it more difficult for people to vote. Randy's calling in from New Haven. Randy, we just have a, a minute or so left. Quickly with your question. Oh, I just want to see what the status is on the PROTECT Act. This was a bill that was passed last year addressing solitary confinement. Governor Lamont vetoed it, and it's been negotiated again with Department of Corrections. And I just I hope hope it passes and turns into law this year. Representative Rojas? Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, you know, Senator Winfield from New Haven has been a champion for this legislation. He has brought everybody together that needs to be brought together and come, came out with a compromise um, out of committee that it suggests to me that it, it, it has a stronger likelihood of being able to pass this year. I believe it came out on a bipartisan basis, which I think, again, gives it additional um, likelihood that it will pass. It's just a matter of waiting on whatever chamber it is for that chamber to act on it first. I believe it's a Senate bill, so we just have to wait for the Senate to act on it before it comes down to the House. Before we head to break, uh, Christine Stewart and I were talking about uh, state lollipops as a state candy. (laughs) What's your take on that? Um, you know, listen, there are always proposals like that that might seem silly to the average person, but we know that there were young people involved in the legislative process who were advocating for for this particular bill. I had an issue like that a couple of years ago with the chemistry club from East Harford High School who thought we should have a state element, right? Some people will think that's silly. Some people think that's a waste of time. But a lot of the bills that we debate are important to someone. Um, and I think we have to you know, give, give them the respect that they're due when they're important to somebody. It may not be important to you, but it's important to someone. And the likelihood of that becomes coming law, uncertain at this time, um, given everything else that we have on the agenda. We'll leave it there. State Representative Jason Rojas, Majority Leader in the Connecticut General Assembly. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me on and the opportunity to educate your listeners. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. After the break, House Minority Leader Representative Vincent Candelora joins us to talk about the Republicans' plan for tax relief, including a proposal to cut the state income tax. And what could make it into the final budget before the session ends? Christine Stewart with CT News Junkie is still with us. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're diving into the General Assembly's short legislative session. It ends next Wednesday, May 4th. Passing a budget is priority number one, and lawmakers on both sides of the aisle want to include tax relief for residents. Joining us now is Connecticut House Minority Leader, State Representative Vincent Candelora, a Republican who also represents Durham, Guilford, North Branford, and Wallingford. Representative Candelora, welcome back to the show. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So a lot to tackle this week. Uh, What do you want to see happen uh, in in the House? We do. I mean, the budget is probably first and foremost. And, you know, as we're crafting the tax policies, what Republicans are looking for is, you know, broad-based tax relief for the middle class, especially trying to address um, and offset the inflation that we're seeing in the short term. So we have some proposals that are revolving around extending the gas tax relief, um, cutting the sales tax, and reducing the income tax on middle and low-income families. So can you tell us specifically about the the, um, the, the income tax cut, I believe? I think uh, Keith Fanoff reported this would be the first time there'd be a potential tax state income tax cut since uh, the mid-'90s. Yeah. So one of the things that we're doing is um, – essentially reducing the uh, income tax rate uh, from 5% to 4%. And the way Connecticut's tax system is, is done is it's tiered. So you're not, for people that are paying 6.99%, you're not paying that amount on the first dollar. Um, you, you pay it in tiers. So this would only apply to people that are, their total earnings are for a family below 175 and for individuals below 75,000. 
Um, anybody above that, the money would be recaptured. So it is taken into account that the break really goes to the middle class only, um, and it keeps the um, the wealthier tax rate intact. So um, it costs it's more affordable for the state to be able to do, and it's really targeting those individuals that need the tax break. Mm. Um, how is it sustainable in the long term? I know we've got more than $3 billion in the rainy day fund. There's another $4 billion in surpluses. And then, of course, the, the federal money will be drying up in another year or so. And so I'm wondering if you can, can talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, the overall cost of this structure is only about $368 million. Um, so when we're looking at, you know, where our revenues actually exceeded performance of over a billion dollars, um, we think it is something that will could be sustainable because um, if we if we are able to continue to see this sort of revenue increase, we we could foot that bill. Most of our proposals of the 1.2 billion uh, is one-time revenue, so um, we are recognizing the inflationary period. Hopefully, it's temporary. So the sales tax and gas tax proposals would only go through the new year. It's only it's what it's doing is spending the windfall money that Connecticut got in this year from the additional revenue. Um, But we do believe, I mean, similarly, the Democrats' proposal with their child tax credit and the property tax credit, uh, while they're laudable as well, um, we like the income tax reduction because it's broad-based. It applies to everybody regardless of whether they're children. So sustainability is an issue, I think, for both parties. Um, But we think it's, it's a modest change to the tax structure that we can do, and it saves about $700, million, or $700 per family. You can join our conversation with State Representative Vincent Candelora. He's the House Minority Leader, 888-720-9677. Alex was calling in for New Haven. Alex, if you're still there, what's your question? Uh, yes, good morning. Uh, my question is, um, what are uh, the uh, what are the uh, plans uh, from the um, House and Senate Republicans uh, to advance uh, electric vehicles uh, and clean energies uh, this session. Uh, there, there is a bill in particular, uh, an act concerning the direct sale of electric vehicles that um, would save the state uh, 20000 in its first year of uh, implementation uh, by allowing uh, companies like Tesla, Rivian, and Lucid to directly sell their vehicles to customers. And I'm wondering if that is something, uh, among many other things, that Republicans would get behind. Yeah, that that bill actually it has bipartisan support and also has bipartisan opposition. And and I think what is trying to be worked through, and is that it's been uh, debated for, for almost a decade, um, the issue to really work through is parity um, for our brick-and-mortar stores, and I think we're seeing it across the spectrum, even with rental cars, and we see um, companies like Turo come into play and competing with um, our brick-and-mortars like an enterprise. Um, they are paying uh, less, less taxes and are able to operate more easily. So as that bill is moving forward, the debate is revolving around how do we you know, protect the current structure of automobile dealerships, uh, especially when you have GM, Ford, Cadillac, are all getting into the electric vehicle market, um, and they are, you know, sort of stuck under the old franchise structure. Um, you know, 
do we give Tesla that edge and allow them to get out from under the franchise structure and sell direct? Um, and so that I don't think has been worked through yet. You know, it's, it's a wait and see. I'm, I don't serve on that committee, but I think until that parity issue is resolved, I'm not sure Connecticut is going to move that bill. Again, you can join us if you have a question for House Minority Leader Republican State Representative Vincent Candelora, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I mentioned that $4 billion surplus. I believe uh, Republicans have an interesting idea to help businesses with some of that uh, payback of the, the unemployment trust fund. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, it's sort of a quiet issue that isn't too sexy, but it certainly is it dramatically impacts our economic recovery. In 2008, we saw our unemployment fund go insolvent. And when that happens, the state borrows money from the federal government and has to pay it back with interest. The interest rate is very low, but the people that have to pay it back are our businesses. So the assessments um, can be you know, quite high for a business. Uh, we argue that the pandemic really was not the fault of businesses. It's not like, oh, wait, we saw an economic downturn. And so we should try to look to pay that debt off in order to help us recover more quickly. Um, you know, just in, in my business, we were assessed a $3,500 unemployment fee just this year alone um, as we're, we're, you know, phasing back in um, the old structure of the unemployment fund. So it really does hurt our economic recovery. So we would like, uh, I think our proposal is about $225 million dollars to be paid into that fund so that businesses don't get assessed these special assessments, you know, which could be upward of the thousands of dollars. Mm. It sounds like a good idea, but I'm just wondering when we think about Connecticut's long-term uh, obligations, we've got a, a big surplus, there's a $3 billion rainy day fund, but in terms of, you know, thinking long-term uh, and how this money should be spent, Representative Candelora. Yeah, I mean, the long-term issue is I, I do think that it's important to put something there, but we do have other long-term issues. When I was um, worked on the bipartisan budget, we implemented that volatility cap that created that large, you know, $3.5 billion savings account, essentially. And we're paying down about one and a half billion dollars in our pensions. But people would be surprised to hear that since 2017, our unfunded liabilities have gone from 75 billion to 95 billion. So the caps are great that we put in place, these fiscal reforms, but I think our next step is we have to have appropriate triggers in place that freeing up that money doesn't allow us just to spend more. Um, and it's a balancing act, and I think it's something that we're going to need to look at long-term um, or in the short-term for long-term recovery because we thought those caps would help improve our unfunded liabilities, and they're not. So. We certainly do have our work cut out for us on that. Mm. Earlier in the show, I talked with Christine Stewart about uh, the push by state Republicans. You'd like to see uh, the governor and the state push back on uh, the federal government in terms of you know being limited in how much you can uh, provide in, in tax cuts because of the amount of uh, federal relief that Connecticut has received. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, what's happened here is the the fed, federal government gave us plenty of money, you know, through the ARPA. Uh, upward of $4 billion, and now we're seeing the infrastructure money flowing in. Um, and they're trying to tie states' hands and saying you, can, you can't give tax relief. Now, I understand we certainly don't want to provide tax relief by using the federal money, but in Connecticut's situation where we have an extra, uh, I think it's over a billion dollars of revenue that was brought in this year just from 
the stock market performance and inflation, um, like sales tax and gas tax um, numbers, that the state should be allowed to use that money to offset tax increases. So we are seeking to um, join the Fifth Circuit and um, file an amicus brief that would ask that Connecticut be allowed to get out from under this cap that the federal government has put on us. Sixteen states have been successful in suing, uh, and the courts have said the feds cannot cap you. And so I'm hopeful that we'll do the same because I think everybody wants to provide some sort of tax relief to the residents of Connecticut. And this limitation is really putting a, a damper on it. I had asked uh, your colleague, Representative Rojas, about a push to help uh, social services that also provide much-needed services to state residents. Where do you stand on that in terms of boosting the money that these nonprofits, two nonprofits, considering you know what they provide the state? Yeah, I mean, the nonprofit industry is just critical for Connecticut's operations, you know, especially when we're looking at the mental health issues that are that are creeping up, you know, from children through adults. Um, Those are the individuals that are that are supplying those services uh, and they they do it much more efficiently and less expensive than the state. Uh, So we do need to look at providing increases for them. And I believe the appropriations of spending package has provided that. Uh, the, the flip side is that a lot of this money is one-time money. So how do we build it into the budget to make it more sustainable and permanent for them? You know, it's certainly going to be a challenge, and I think we all agree uh, it needs to happen. It's just a matter of getting the resources to get there. That's State Representative Vincent Candelora, who is the House Minority Leader. Christine Stewart's still with us. Christine, you're able to hear both Representative Rojas and now Representative Candelora. What stood out to you in terms, again, uh, what's going to need to happen this week? I, I think how far apart they still are on the budget. And I, I just also want to point out that, you know, Republicans aren't in the room negotiating this. Um, so, you know, I know that they want their support, and I know Republicans support um, some of these tax cuts. Um, but will they be able to get to a bipartisan budget like they did in 2019? It really remains unclear, and they really are still years apart, and I don't know how quickly all of this will coalesce. Again, that's Christine Stewart, uh, who is the editor-in-chief of CT News Junkie. Always a pleasure to hear from you, Christine. Hope you get some sleep this week. <laughs> thank you. And State Representative Candel- Vincent Candelora, thank you for your time today on the show. Thanks for having me. Take care. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. You can listen to Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.